Good morning. Um, I'll begin with some uh, kind of sad news. Many of you, um, some of you, I think, probably many of you will remember Bill and Margaret Bingham who used to attend this class in church. And uh, Margaret died this week and her funeral service was in Rosenberg, Richmond, Richmond. Um, and uh, thank those of you who went to that and uh, helped me write the homily for that. She um, contracted lupus and died from an autoimmune illness connected to that. And day before yesterday, Thelma Rowe, longtime member of this church, and uh, Thelma's daughter sings in the choir. Uh, Thelma was admitted to hospice care day before yesterday. Thelma told me yesterday when I visited her that she, I think she said that she'd been a member of this church since 1988. Is that what she said, Sherry? You remember? Look, that's right. Long time. Long time. So you want to remember remember them uh, in, in your prayers and reach out to them if you're friends. So I am going to keep um, reminding you of the uh, study group that is meeting on Tuesday nights at 6.30 in the Sanctuary Building in room 301, led by uh, Diane Schinke and based um, on the document Reclaiming Jesus, which you can read on the Ordinary Life website, and uh, I'm using it and... Um, Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion is somewhat of a guide to uh, construct these talks that you hear in here. So, actually, the, the work that Diane is doing is um, an example of taking something that she heard here and putting it into practice. She thought, what can I do? And her gift is um, leading seminars like this. And, and so um, it's a great way to get to know other people in the class and converse with them. So I would encourage you to attend. We are attending that. So I think this will be the fourth one. There will be five more or eight in the, in the series. I encourage you to attend. The last two times, David Fawcett has brought some of his baked goods. So that might entice you to come. thats I didn't mean to put pressure on you. <laughs> so David may take a, take a week off this week and not bring. <laughs> so this would be a great time for you to come and practice for Lent and do without. So however it is. So you doing okay otherwise? How's your practice? More heads are going. A few people are saying, what's he talking about? We'll figure it out. So I'm so grateful for you. I hope you know that. that this is. And um, always hello to the pajama people or to the wine and cheese people, depending on your time zone, or to the wine and cheese people if you just start early in the day. So... <laughs> 
And thanks to William and Olivia and to everybody who makes it possible for this to happen. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So unless you are here for the very first time, and if you are, welcome, um, you are aware that I am wanting to face more seriously into what it might mean for us to be followers of Jesus. And I want to be real clear that I'm not talking about what it might mean to be Christian in the sense of having a certain set of things to believe. For the first 300 years or so, Christianity or the Jesus movement was not about believing. It was about having a place in a community where there was love and joy and sharing and forgiveness and acceptance and inclusion were practiced in that, in that community. There was nothing to defend in the early days of Christianity. So I'm trying to see if we can recapture a sense of that for our, our daily living. And I'm talking about what it might mean to take seriously embracing an alternative vision of social reality. And so I'm, I'm calling this talk today going back in order to go forward. We go back to reclaim some things that we have lost sight of or have forgotten or just need to be reminded of. And in taking this path, it is not my intention to make anybody feel guilty or bad if you go to one of the Reclaiming Jesus meetings on Tuesday night and you see what some of the declarations are in the Reclaiming Jesus document and talk about social justice and inclusion and truth-telling and a lot of other things, you might measure yourself on some scale as thinking, well, I don't measure up to that. I don't do that. And maybe, maybe doing the kind of thing that Diane does, standing in front of a group like this, is not your gift. So all I'm saying is that it would be helpful to find what your gift is and be able to use that in the world in a way that helps contribute to making this uh, a different place. I just want to look honestly at what it means to take seriously the teachings of this first century Jewish mystic who gives us a model for how to live. He didn't stay in Galilee where he would have remained a popular but largely unrecognized, unimportant rabbi. But as one of the narratives have it, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem where he would assert and act out the contradiction that what he had to say posed for the establishment of his day. And what I'm trying to raise is the fact that Truly following him means walking on the same path of contradiction and contestation. He contradicted the predominant message of his day, and he went up in contest against the power structure. That's what I mean by contradiction and contestation. How many of you have now seen the movie Just Mercy? Put your hand up. Not nearly enough. You, 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 uh, you should see this movie. 
um, or read the book. You remember that last week uh, Holly and I talked about Brian Stevenson. The man who plays the part of Brian Stevenson in the movie even looks a bit like him, I think. And um, Brian Stevenson started out in this justice project in defending uh, indigent people on death row in Alabama. And when he started, there was just him and one other person. And at the end of the movie, if you stay for the credits that roll at the end, you'll see now there are about 150 people who work in this movement. So that's a sign of, that, that's a sign of hope. Um, doing what he does is not my gift. I couldn't do that. That's what I'm not called to do. But I do think that we're all called to um, practice distributive justice. As a matter of fact, one of the lines I have in my own daily practice um, written material that I read every day is that I believe that if we can practice distributive justice, peace will take care of itself. And that we can do something every day to contribute to this in the way that we talk to each other, in the way that we talk to other people, and, and how we practice things. Now, I really believe that. So we gave, Holly and I, uh, she's in California now, uh, attending her to her PhD studies, but the next day, I picked up the Houston Chronicle to read this headline on the front page, placed in the way, if you know anything about how newspapers are published, they put the article that they want you to read first in the upper right, all right? And this is the article that was in the Houston Chronicle last Monday. I'm going to quote from it just a little bit. President Donald Trump made a stark appeal to black Americans during the 2016 election when he asked, what have you got to lose? Three years later, black Americans have rendered their verdict with a deeply pessimistic assessment of their place in the United States. The findings come from a poll of African Americans nationwide which reveals fears about whether their children will have a fair shot to succeed and a belief that white Americans don't fully appreciate the discrimination that black people experience. And it goes on. If you can access the archives of the Chronicle, I encourage you to read this article. It goes on for, for quite a while. And there was another article in the New York Times later this past week that I was going to quote today. But just to give you a mention in, in reference, there has been evidence, on, solid evidence, uncovered of a new hate group, uh, white nationalist hate group, that is officially called the base. Have you heard anything about this? This is scary. This is scary stuff. And this stuff seems to be growing in our country, not diminishing. And I have talked to people who have said, well, it's been here all the time. Well, that may be true, but we had the adult ability to keep our mouth shut about it, or some people did, right? But now there seems to be this permission granted to say and do things that we otherwise would not do. So I hear this sort of stuff, I read this sort of stuff, and I think, good God, we have a lot of work to do. So you remember that there were two ways of thinking that were once useful, but they've outlived their usefulness, and we've called those cosmological dualism and individual salvation. We've got to think out of a different perspective, a perspective for the whole, 
for the whole of the globe, the whole of humanity for everyone. So think, for example, of the policies that led the United States to build a wall at the southern border instead of having an open, honest conversation about the factors that made people want to come here in the first place. When several years ago, I read Susan Yarborough's book on immigration called Bench Pressed, and I think everybody says, yes, we need a very good, reasonable immigration policy. That Nobody's going to, I think, disagree with that. I had a multitude of reactions to reading this book written by a now-retired federal immigration judge. My reactions to what she wrote were four. I was proud of our country, that people wanted and were risking everything to come live here. I was ashamed of our country in the ways that we had been complicit in creating the circumstances that made people want to come here in the first place. I was appalled by what I would call man's inhumanity to man. I'm not being sexist. This is a guy thing. Men can do horrible things to other men, horrible things to other men. And I was also inspired by the resiliency of the human spirit, that no matter what some people had been through, they were undaunted in their efforts and desires to come here. So why is it that a wall was so terrible in Berlin but so essential in Juarez and San Diego, or in parts of the present state of Israel. We have governments that make desperate individuals into criminals. You don't want to know the statistics of kids that are in cages now, nor to think from a psychological perspective what their future is going to be, how they will live out their lives in whatever society that they, they end up in. We question those individuals, but we rarely question the global economic systems that uh, make these systems and, and, and corporations that keep such unjust things in place untouchable. So getting out of the individual perspective into a global one, living non-dually, addressing root causes, taking appropriate action, this takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of spiritual intelligence, and it takes a lot of patience. Individual egos, we want a quick fix. We want something right now. And, and hopefully, uh, we might be beginning to see that these quick fix things um, lead to deeply flawed solutions. So that's one reason that we need a spiritual practice, and one reason that we need perspective. If we're not going to go right and we're not going to go left, but we're going to go deep, we have to develop a willingness to hold the tension of right and left. And, and until we are led to a different perspective, right? And I believe that we can do that. So at this point, I want to share, actually it's a reshare, but I think most of you uh, if you have a memory like mine, you're not going to remember this. So. <laughs> I want to share, reshare with you a pivotal story, a story from a pivotal point in my own life. It was about 40 years ago. Uh, 
Um, I had uh, just was on the front edge of meeting Sherry. I had not yet met Sherry. Um, a friend of mine who lives in Maryland had sent me a set of cassette tapes. So you know how long ago this was. We don't have cassette players. About some lectures that he had attended. And um, the lectures that he had attended were given by a man named Frederick Beekner. Now, I've been reading Frederick Beekner's books since the mid-60s. And I first found out about him. At that point in my life, well, not in the 60s, but at the point that my friend sent me these tapes, um, my life and I were descending to a point that I could never have imagined a few years ahead. So I listened to these lectures, which are given at Harvard, and they became so precious to me. I listened to them over and over and over. And later, this man, Frederick Beekner, uh, had them printed in a book called The Sacred Journey. And uh, I just to let you know that this is Beekner. This is Beekner's father. And uh, it's not going to blow the story to tell you that Beekner's father committed suicide just shortly after this picture was taken. So um, that's part of the context out of which Beekner writes this, um, this book. So in this story, in this book, and on the tapes, Beekner told a story that I want to retell. So as I said, even though Sherry and I met in, in the, the 80s, I discovered Beekner in the 60s. I used to brag that I owned everything that he's ever written. I don't think that's any longer true. He's written well over 30 books. Um, he is considered too religious to be taken seriously by secular people and too secular to be taken seriously by a lot of religious people. So he's not won literary, he's won some literary awards, but nothing like a Pulitzer or anything like that. Um, but his writings, both fiction and nonfiction, have had a significant influence on my life and on my own writing style, on my own way of trying to say things. I think he may be in the top 10 in that category. Certainly, his writings, not just in The Sacred Journey, uh, but in other books, called, sort of shepherd, shepherded me through the, one of the bleakest, most difficult periods of, of my own life. And in this book, Beekner talks about his understandings of what it means to have faith, what it means to embrace hope, and what it means to practice love. It's a great book, you, and you can read it shortly. I bet a lot of you have read the book. How many? You've read it. One person. One, two people. Three people in this group are going to heaven. Look at that. <laughs> you, I think, I'm sure you probably get this book on your, your Kindle. So in this uh, brief volume, The Sacred Journey, Beekner talks about during the time after his father had committed suicide, he entered his own fantasy world by reading um, the, the books of, about uh, King Rinkatink in the land of Oz, the Frank Baum books. And um, the character in these books that left the deepest mark on Beekner was a plump, abelian king by the name of Rinkadink. 
And he was, according to Beekner, a foolish man in many ways, who laughed too much and talked too much, and at moments of stress was apt to burst into unkingly tears. But beneath all of that, he uh, gave the impression of remarkable strength and resilience and courage, which were things that Beekner needed in his own life at that time. So Bickner said he's a good man to have around when the chips were down. Rinkatink has a friend whose name is Prince Inga of Pingaree. And they came into possession, and I think this book cover illustrates it, of three magic pearls. There's one of them being given into this adult hand. There was a pink... Um, there was a blue one that conferred such strength that no power could resist it. There was a pink one that protected its owners from all dangers. And there was a pure white one that would speak words of great wisdom and helpfulness. And when King Rinkadink consulted that pearl for the first time, the message he got back was never question the truth of what you fail to understand, for the world is filled with wonders. Both of our wedding rings have pink, blue, and white stones on them. So in the, in the sacred journey, Beekner tells of an experience he had one weekend, and um, I want to read that to you. By the way, uh, at the second date that Sherry and I had, I gave her a copy of this book. And I wrote in it to Sherry from Bill at the beginning. That's how confident I was. <laughs> and how hopelessly romantic I can be. <laughs> so these are Beekner's words. He went to a monastery called the Order of the Holy Cross in West Park, New York. And these are his words. I had two reasons for going. One of them was that I heard that one of the monks there was a, great, was a man of great wisdom and sanctity. And I had questions that I wanted to ask him, which I have long since forgotten, just as I would have undoubtedly long since forgotten his answers. The other reason was that I felt I needed somehow to be cleansed of the too muchness, the too littleness of my life, to be cleansed as much of, as anything I suppose of myself. In some ways, the trip was a flop. The monk I had come to see had taken on some special vows and could not be seen. And all the other monks practiced the vow of silence except for one elderly one known as the guest master, who had the responsibility to talk to visitors like me. But as the result of a stroke, he spoke so indistinctly as to be almost unintelligible. So none of my questions were answered, whatever they were. I meant no one who gave me whatever help I'd come for or whom I ever saw again or especially wanted to see again. Nothing in that sense happened. But silence happened. Silence at meals, in the corridors, the silence of men who, for the love of God, kept silence. And to some degree, silence also happened to myself. Silence not merely as the absence of speech, but as a kind of speech itself. Or something as a prelude to speech, a prelude to hearing someone 
or something speak out of the silence. When it came time for me to leave, the guest master asked if I would like for him to hear my confession. I cringed with embarrassment. I told him, I thought you confessed your sins to God. Well, sometimes it meant more to confess them to God through a priest, he said. So I told him what I could, told him a few of the things I'd done that I thought were sinful, childish, fleshy things for the most part, but terrible to tell nonetheless. And at the time, I suppose he must have pronounced my forgiveness, though I don't remember feeling particularly forgiven and cleansed. But the old man himself, I remember, some special combination of sternness and kindness about him. Would I like for him to give me his blessing, he asked. And as much out of politeness as anything, and because I thought maybe then he would let me go, I said yes. So he indicated that I was to kneel down on the stone floor. I knelt as awkwardly as I confessed, if not more so. And he signed me with the sign of the cross, and he blessed me. He said, you have a long way to go. Those are the only words that I remember exactly. I had a long way to go. Now this is what, in my attempting to follow Jesus, is the message I get back. I got a long way to go. But I don't hear that as judgment. I hear it as hope. Hope doesn't mean easy. I remember my spiritual director saying to me, uh, uh, well, it looks like you've accomplished what you came for. Now we get to do the hard stuff. <laughs> Indeed. I, 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 there's no doubt I need judgment about my own judgments, my own sense of righteousness, my own sense of lacking up, not living up to what I say. Um, I, I learned in seminary, and I have looked, for this, off and on, furiously, ever since I left seminary and have not been able to find it. It's kind of a secret fear that I harbor. Um, it is said that one of the great preachers of one of the great awakenings here in this country was giving a sermon out, you know, they gave them out in fields. Lots of people came. And in the middle of his sermon... His wife stood up in the back and said, he doesn't live it at home. <laughs> well, we all have that kind of hypocrisy in us, don't we? Yeah. I hear hope in this, you got a long way to go. What matters is the work of freedom to allow God to be God, to allow ourselves to be who we are in God, nothing more, nothing less. You with me? I know it's a lot to keep in your head, in your heart, in your hands. But here's a summary of weeks of talks. We're at the end of cosmological dualism and individual salvation. We have a necessity to create a coherent social order and whole persons. They go together. You can't have a coherent social order if you don't, with dysfunctional people. 
and, and dysfunctional people cannot become whole persons in a dysfunctional social order. So it takes both going forward to do that. And we, we have the imperative of social justice, particularly racial justice in this country, to deal with. So how do we do this? Well, we act out of a core set of beliefs about compassion and justice. Love, mercy, inclusion, and acceptance. Now, the way Jesus animated people to do this is he told stories. Someone would ask Jesus a question, and Jesus would answer that question with a question. And then more often than not, he would follow that by telling a story. And our temptation is to think that just because we've heard them so often, we know the stories, and that is an illusion because we live now in an entirely different cognitive world. Absent cosmological dualism and individual salvation, we're having to rethink absolutely everything. Are we getting to rethink everything? We are in this really enviable position of having a long way to go. We get to go a long way. So one time a very bright man went up to Jesus and asked him a question. Actually, he wanted to embarrass Jesus and trip him up. And um, so he asked Jesus, what have I got to do to inherit this thing you call eternal life? Now, this thing called eternal life that Jesus talked about is not something that happens to you when you die. It's right now, right here, in this place. You don't have to die to go to heaven. And so Jesus said to him, well, what do you know already? You know, one of the biggest things that trips people up in life is we get to think that there's something else we need, something we need to have or do that will give us a solution to our problems. And there's just enough truth in this that it frequently sidetracks us and seduces us uh, out of being right here, right now. The fact is, everybody in this room already knows what to do. You know what to do. But we just so easily get seduced away from doing it. So we were in Turkey and uh, visited a lot of mosques. This is one of them. And um, the uh, Iman gives a sermon from up here in the pulpit. And the ceilings appear, the ceilings are really high, but the chandeliers are low because everybody comes in and kneels on prayer rugs. And um, these places are places of beauty. They're the work of art, the mosaics uh, written on the walls, just absolutely beautiful. And um, as we sort of walked around the mosque, actually it was locked, but the caretaker let us in, just the six of us were, that were together on this. And as we walked around this, this particular mosque, I saw these prayer beads. Uh, they were hanging on hooks. There were some even hanging on the radiator right here. I mean, they were all over the place. The guys would come in and they would leave them on the prayer rugs and also the little round stone that they used to put their head on when they bowed forward. So many prayer beads. I collect prayer beads. And I saw one set that I was particularly attracted to. 
And I did, I confess, have the thought that if I took it, nobody would know. But fortunately, I travel with an external ethical voice. <laughs> and she said, no, <laughs> don't even think about it. So a few days later, when we got back to Istanbul and the hotel where we had started our visit, I began to ask around where I could get some really authentic prayer beads. And I spoke to a number of men that I had become friendly with in the first few days that we were there. And, and so I asked them where I could get some authentic prayer beads, uh, like the ones you use. Not the kind made for tourists. I want ones like you use. And the responses that I got back were, well, I don't go to service. I know I should, but I don't, so I can, I don't really Or, you know, I don't go to service. I know I shouldn't drink, but, you know. Or, I don't go to service. I know I, and I felt like I was starting to hear confession. <laughs> and I finally ran into this one guy who said, well, I don't go to service, but if you go over by the Blue Mosque and take this little side street, there's a little shop that sells to Muslim people. And you might go there. So I went there, and I found someone who spoke English, and I told him what I wanted. And he said, yeah, we got that. And he directed me to a withered old man. I explained, he explained to him what I wanted. And the guy pulled out a box of prayer beads, and I found these, which were exactly like the ones that were um, I'd seen in that mosque. These exactly. I think I paid the princely sum of under two American dollars for these. And when I got them, I was so glad that I had, I'd been thinking about them for days. And I just wanted, I wanted them, you know. And so when I had them in my hand, I thanked this old guy and I said, I love your country. And he just walked up and put his arms around me and kissed me on the cheek and said, I love you too. <laughs> I have my prayer beads. By the way, as an aside, Muslim prayer beads have 99 beads plus three spacers, so 101. Um, Buddhist prayer beads have 108 beads. Uh, Roman Catholic rosaries have 59 and the new kid on the block, the uh, Anglican prayer beads, they have 33 beads, and they all have different things. Muslim prayer beads are not used for praying. They're used for counting. Muslim, I mean, Buddhists, Buddhists don't pray. They don't have a God. So they miss out a lot. If you're Hindu, you've got a lot of gods. But My point in telling the story is that the men... I asked to help me find the location to buy the prayer beads, knew exactly what their tradition asked of them. They didn't need to be taught anything. They knew. And I should have known, I do know, but sometimes I act like I don't, that adding these to my life doesn't change anything. Right? So I ask you, what do you already know to do that would enhance your life and make this a better place that you don't do? Already. 
So the man in the Jesus story said, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, bingo. You just want an all-expense-paid trip to Nirvana or something like that. But that wasn't enough for this guy. He wanted to know, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus said, well... There was a guy who was going from Houston to Sugarland, and a gang of MS5 attacked him, beat him up, took everything he had, left him for dead. Now, it just so happened a person of the Jewish persuasion was going down that same road, and when he saw that man, he walked by on the other side of the road. In the same way, there was a member of the Ordinary Life Gathering they also came by there. They went over, looked at him, and then walked by on the other side. But a certain member of Al-Qaeda, special forces, who was traveling that way, came upon him. When he saw the man, his heart was filled with pity. So he went over to him, put medicine on his wounds, bandaged him, then put him in his Mercedes that he had recently taken, <laughs> took him to the presidential suite at the Warwick Hotel, where he took care of him for a few days. And the next day, he took a suitcase out of his car and uh, gave $100,000 cash to the man behind the desk and said, don't ask me where this money comes from. Just take care of this guy. And here's my American Express gold card. Put any expes expenses over this on it, and I'll settle up with you when I come back. I've got a raid to make. And then Jesus said, now... In your opinion, which one of these people was really neighbor to the man in need by the side of the road? And the smart alecky guy said, well, it was the one who showed compassion on him. And Jesus said, that's eternal life here and now. You go do the same. Now, in light of cosmological, um, the end of cosmological dualism or the reality of cosmological evolution, what we're seeing is that everybody is our neighbor because we're all connected to everybody. This is, this is not a new teaching. We're going back to claim something that you can find roots of in prophetic Judaism, in Buddhism, in Islam, in Hinduism, in Confucianism, don't do to somebody what you don't want done to yourself. That is not a new teaching. But now we grasp it with a new understanding of just how real is the truth that we are connected to each other and to everybody else who is out there. In light of cosmological evolution, we are learning that spiritual commandments are not, you must do this. They are descriptions of reality. If I tell you thou shalt not swim the Atlantic Ocean, that's not a commandment. That's a description of something you cannot do and have life. You cannot kill your neighbor and have life. You cannot steal from your neighbor. You cannot bear false witness against your neighbor. You can't do any of that stuff and still have life.
So if we're going to make this a better world, one of the things we have to do is to learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, there is a love that is out there in this culture that is not useful, and it's called narcissism. There was a rumor for a while that the people who write the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Code for Mental Disorders, who are going to take the diagnosis of narcissism out of the DSM because it's so common. It has not, this is not, a, a Sherry asked one of our psychiatric friends uh, if that was true or not, and he said, yes, it was true that they were contemplating doing that, but they did not do it. It's still in there as a diagnosis. But it's all over our culture. One very useful definition of sin is that sin is the dominating self-concern that puts us at the center of life, and it's very deceptive because we end up thinking that other people are here for our benefit, and we kid ourselves by calling it a, a loving relationship. If we do, in fact, love all that is as we love ourselves, our salvation lies in learning really to know who we are and to love that. Eric Fromm, the psychoanalyst, put it this way, if it is a virtue to love my neighbor as a human being, that it must be a virtue and not a vice to love myself since I am a human being too. Most people in church have not been taught this. Most people have been taught that to love yourself is selfish. Don't put yourself first. Don't you think of yourself first. That's not a thing to do. I will get the, um, this is not my notes, but I will get these affirming emails from people that say, They've just gotten on the Ordinary Life mailing list or the whatever, and they say, man, I really like your teaching. It has given me back a sense of myself and an understanding of myself and an understanding of God and an understanding of how church might be useful and all of that. And I'm so glad to hear that kind of thing. And I don't say it, but I want to say, who took that away from you in the first place? Does the church. There's no concept of life or what we call abundant life in which you are not included. Respect for your own integrity and your own uniqueness, love and understanding for your own self, these cannot be separate from love and respect and accepting of another person. Your love for your own self is inseparably connected to the love that you have for others. Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, love everyone else as if they were your mother, for they are. So real spirituality, I have come to believe, is in learning how to conjugate the verbs to be and to love. To love being and to love our being. Now, how does this change occur? Well, as I said, one of the most powerful ways through all of human history has been through the telling of stories. And Jesus told the story we're dealing with in response to the question, how can I find meaning in life? And he told the story. It's a great story. And, and, and one of the things I really like about uh, Jesus is that, um, or any true spiritual teacher, he takes a path that seems so complicated and he makes it so simple. Just so, this is it. Who's the neighbor? Do that. You got it. What's life all about? How can I find meaning in life? Well, it's how you deal with that guy in the ditch by the side of the road. 
Now, I think it's really helpful, and this is also going back, this is what Jim Wallace means in Reclaiming Jesus. I think it's really helpful to remember who told the story. You, we need to remember that throughout, and I'm speaking metaphorically now, okay, throughout the history of the Jesus movement, Jesus has been neighbor to us. Going down into the ditch by the side of the road, doing something he did not have to do to demonstrate that despite the terrifying complexities and obstacles and dilemmas, he's with us. Pouring oil and wine on our wounds, his grace sustaining, forgiving, encouraging us. And in his life and death and life, he shows us what grace looks like, unwrapped. That's the way Brian Stevenson ends his novel, is that we need mercy, justice, and a lot of unmerited grace. And it's given to us. I want to say one other thing, and then I'm going to go for today. This way that I'm talking about the way to life is not the way because Jesus followed it. Please understand that. Jesus followed it because it's the way. So what must we do to find meaning? What is life about? Who and where is God? Well, once upon a time, a certain man was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among the thieves and ended up in a ditch by the side of the road. And the rest of the story, you'll have to finish. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry a precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you.